My name is Rachel Williams and I'm an Associate Professor of Art Education at the University of Iowa. If you find yourself one day leaving Cedar Rapids and following Highway 30 through open fields past the Cedro Motel and Hope's Bridal Center through various small crossroads, you might end up in Tama, Toledo. On Church Street in Toledo, you'll see a whole bunch of these old brick buildings and you'll think to yourself, what is that? It looks like a girls' school. If you look closely though, you'll see girls and boys dressed in uniform colors such as green and maroon. You'll notice the girls aren't wearing makeup and that many of them are carrying school books. This is the Iowa Juvenile Home. On this campus are a series of cottages where girls and boys live separately and Herbert Hoover High School. The juvenile home is the end of the road for many of these young people. In 2004, the University of Iowa announced funding opportunities to support engagement with the state of Iowa through the arts and humanities. I chose to seek this funding with the girls from the Iowa Juvenile Home in mind. I partnered with Devery Mock and the College of Education to create a program for the girls at the Iowa Juvenile Home focused on creative writing and art making. We worked with approximately 30 girls over the course of one year. This CD is based on the results of that program. Featured on the CD are a series of interviews with the girls, Deb Honest, the clinical supervisor at IJH, and Craig Rosen, the principal of Herbert Hoover High School on the campus of IJH. There are also snippets of stories told by girls who participated in our groups. It's my hope that listeners will gain a deeper understanding of the challenges that girls in the juvenile justice system face. In addition to this, I hope to help give these girls a voice. What is the profile of a typical juvenile female delinquent? These shared characteristics of an at-risk adolescent female are identified by Barbara Bloom, a professor at Sonoma State University in California. Typically, girls are between the ages of 13 and 18 years. They have a history of victimization, especially physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. They might be labeled by others as an academic failure, a truancy risk, or a dropout. Usually, they have been detained for repeated status offenses, especially running away. They usually have an unstable family life, including family involvement in the criminal justice system, lack of connectedness, and social isolation. In addition to these challenges, they might have a history of unhealthy dependent relationships, especially with older males. At-risk adolescent girls also might have a history of mental health issues and substance abuse. In the juvenile justice system, there is also an overrepresentation among communities of color. This laundry list, as identified by Dr. Barbara Bloom, is fairly representative of the girls I encountered at IJH. Most of these girls are labeled as either juvenile offenders or CINAs, China's Children in Need of Assistance. Children in Need of Assistance are defined by the state of Iowa as children who are abused or neglected. In Iowa, the juvenile court deals with three types of cases, CINAs, delinquent youths who have committed criminal acts, and young people who are involuntarily committed to hospitals or other treatment facilities due to chemical dependency, addiction, or mental health disorders that place the child or others around the child at risk of harm. IJH has young women who are Chinas, delinquent youths, or involuntarily committed because of chemical dependency. 80% of the residents at IJH have mental health issues that require therapeutic treatment and in many cases pharmacological treatment as well. Many of the girls feel that they have lived lives that are not like other teenagers. What you're about to hear are different journeys girls have had through the juvenile justice system in Iowa. Um, 
I also used alcohol. I was also um, a meth user, um, marijuana, kind of into all of it. I've been running away since I was 12. I've had um, a big problem with that. This is also my second time back there. Um, I was there about a year and a half ago. Was there for eight months, completed the program, um, got out, and got back into meth. And I was on the run for about a year, and then I came back about four months ago. And during that year, I was on the run. I learned a lot, like about myself and um, about what I want in life. And there's better things out there. I've learned that. And um, so this time, I'm making a change in myself, and it's a lot better. Um, how I ended up at J um, IJH is, uh, like I said, I was a substance abuse user. I abused alcohol. Was my main substance abuse. Um, I would drink all the time, and then. Um, got to the point where I would end up um, blacking out, um, not remembering what was ha you know, what had happened to me. I'd wake up and next morning, you know, where am I at? You know, I could be anywhere. Um, you know, a lot of bad things could happen to me. I wouldn't remember. Um, uh, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd again. I was in and out of placement. I've been to two other placements besides IJH and um, successful successfully completed those programs, but um, just uh, I didn't really put any use into them when I got out, so um, yeah, that's how I ended up at IJH, and now I am in um, residential substance abuse treatment class that I uh, go into every day now during school. My mom was locked up for like two years, so we was living with my grandma. My grandma had rules. We had to do everything she, we were supposed to, but we didn't. We got in trouble. <laughs> we was in school. We used to get kicked out of school every day. We fight. We fight other girls. We just like pick fights, and we just walk around doing bad stuff, using drugs, drinking alcohol, and my dad, he, he wasn't there for me. He was always gone. He was using. So, really, my grandma basically took care of us all our life. And now my life is different. And I changed a lot. I don't do drugs and I don't do bad stuff. I don't fight no more. And when I go home, I'm hopefully doing good and getting my son back. One of the things is, you know, all of you have talked about how your life now is really different from what a typical, you know, teenage girl probably goes through. How do you think your life is a little different? Like, what do you think, you know, if you were a typical teenage girl, what would it be like? And then what do you think it's, how would you explain it to people so that they can understand <coughs> what your experience is? Do you want me to answer that? Yeah, go for it. Um, I guess the difference is, um, like me, I've been locked up. Um, I wouldn't say most of my life, but a good portion of my life, and, uh, you know, I've experienced a lot more things than the average teenage girl. Um, like, for me, I had to grow up faster. Um, I had a lot more um, emotional um, issues, a lot of, yeah, emotional issues to, that I had to deal with, and um, basically relying on myself more, um, I would say the average typical um, teenager 
uh, doesn't compare to what I've been through. Um, I would say their problems are a lot um, lower. That's what I would say. A typical teenager, um, I would say, is kind of like me. I mean, we experiment. Um, you know, we go through the changes of male relationships, um, you know, just getting to know ourselves. And that's kind of um, how I am, but I think I took it a little bit too far. Like, and I, I started, um, like, smoking weed when I was 10 years old. Like, I really didn't have a teenage life because I've been locked up since I was 12, you know, all the way until now. I'm 17, I'm going to be 18 soon. And so I've missed out on a lot of family relationships. Um, I got five nieces and nephews, and I've missed out on their lives. Um, most teenagers know they're really involved with their families. Um, they get to, um, you know, just grow up more and kind of grow up faster. I'm definitely not typical, but um, I do a lot of the things most of the girls do. I'm a very big reader. Some people don't agree with my type of reading. I'm a romance novel person. <laughs> Most people think I'm a little kooky because of that, but I don't care. Um, I do the, I watch movies. I go to school full time. I raised a little, my little sisters and stuff, so kind of been the role model for them. And the thing I'm biggest thing I'm proud of right now is trying to be the kid and not the parent because now everybody's not my responsibility, I am. And that was a big thing for me to switch into. So, and I'm also getting ready to leave the juvenile home. How do you feel about that? Well, it's kind of scary since I've been here for a year. I was at an abusive foster home and they gave me a choice to come here or stay there where I was at. And I went and packed my bags and I left and went to shelter for a couple of days. But now that you know you've been through stuff like that it's just amazing to see like what it's like when you get out and you're not in that kind of environment you're better <coughs> than what you were before Many of these girls began their journeys through the juvenile justice system at a very young age their relationships with their families play a major role in this journey According to Dr. Ann Booker-Loper, there are multiple family factors associated with delinquency in young people. These include single-parent families, parental conflicts, parents who have already been involved in the criminal justice system, poor family management, and residential mobility. She believes that these problems may affect girls at higher rates because they tend to stay closer to home. She feels the following factors best predicted delinquency in girls, parental acceptance, respect, freedom from conflict, and approval of peers. This is not surprising considering the importance of close relationships for girls. Feeling accepted and respected by parents is crucial for preventing delinquent behavior among girls. In my house, well, my dad, he died when I was 12 years old. Um, he was murdered, he was shot and killed. Um, my mom, she raised six kids um, on her own, so. It was, it was really hard for her and she struggled a lot. Um, I never really had a really good relationship with my father because he was in and out of prison and he was a crack cocaine user. Um, my mother, she was never a substance abuse uh, person, but she 
I think she's a strong one out of the family, and she kept us together a lot, and um, she worked hard to keep um, us together. I think it was more, um, I had a lot of anger from my father's murder, and in which I um, got in trouble a lot and started acting out on my emotions and um, started to use uh, alcohol and drugs. Um, and then I would get in fights a lot at school because I was, you know, very uh, hurt because my, my whole life my family has been unstable and just there was never, there was really any, nobody really to turn to and no um, support there, so it was hard. Um, when I was 10, I turned my family in, my mom and dad in, for um, using drugs, which led to child abuse. Um, so I really don't talk to them. Their rights were terminated. Some girls at the home are already parents themselves. This is difficult for anyone at any age, but presents special challenges for teenage girls. There is no link between teenage pregnancy and delinquency, but there are several factors associated with both. These include substance abuse and high-risk behaviors, and surprisingly, fighting. According to Ann Booker-Loper, quote, in a recent study of teen pregnancy in the United States, self-reported fighting was a significant pregnancy predictor among sexually active girls, end quote. I have a son. He was born September 18th. He's one now. Um, I had raised five of my mom's kids while she was um, locked up. I took care of them and did everything that I was supposed to do with um, babies and stuff, me and my grandma. And it was hard, but I had my grandma beside me and my aunts and uncles. So. They basically helped me with everything. Once girls enter the juvenile justice system, they are typically placed in many different facilities and foster homes before coming to the juvenile home. How many of you have been in foster placement? What's that like to be in a foster home? It's hard, isn't it? Not exactly, because some of the people are there for the money, and then there's people that really do care, but most of the time they don't really love you and they don't really want you. They just want the money because they get paid really good to be foster parents. Like, I think it's like a thousand for a child within like two months. And a lot of them just want the money, and that doesn't mean a lot to us because we really depend on foster homes because with girls our ages, foster homes are the hardest things to find because they want littler kids. I was in three placements. Uh, I've been in and out of detentions. I've been to shelters. Um, and also been to some um, uh, outpatient treatment for drugs and other programs for um, just anger. Um, I've been in and out of detention center. Um, I've been to two, um, what is it, high level of um, substance abuse treatment. Um, some of those places I was repeat offender because I'd go there and I'd run away and then I'd get caught and then they'd send me back there and I'd run away again. And so I've been um, in and out of those and I was in a long-term placement for a year and then um, 
I went to the juvenile home and then I left there and I came back, so I tend to go back to the same places. I was in daydream a program that helped you with your anger. Um, I was in detention and I was in IJH. Most girls would agree that being a resident at IJH is difficult, but also life-changing. When I first came to the juvenile home, I was rude and you couldn't say anything to me and I would not listen to you. I was in my world and all I wanted to do was go get some alcohol and drink it and I didn't care what everybody else thought. And it took me a long time to realize that to earn respect, you have to give it. And um, we talked during our many meetings, which is what we call making our weeks, we just have like little meetings to find out. And we, my counselor asked my group of girls that's also on her caseload, did they like to be around me more? And hearing their feedback helped a lot because they all said, 99% of them said that they like me now more than I did when I first came in. And that makes me feel good to know that I, they've noticed change, I've noticed a change, I'm not all sad, I don't always read. I read a lot now, but I'm not isolating anymore. And I don't want to kill myself, and that's my best. Okay, um, we each, we're in different cottages, so like each of our roles are similar. We have like a policy book that we're supposed to follow, but some cottages follow all of them and the rest of us like follow different ones. I happen to be in Scout Cottage, and the biggest, our weeks run Wednesday to Wednesday instead of Monday through Sunday because our counselors are not there on Saturday and Sunday. And they have a, like a computer where like if I called her name or something, they'd log a behavior for you and you like they write like follow-up services we follow the coc which is called the circle of courage kind of what coc children of change is based off of and there's four things it was an, actually a native american thing at first and it goes generosity belonging mastery and independence and we earn positives for doing stuff like that and like it's not a challenge to see who gets more positives or who can be the worst person in the world <laughs> it's mostly about you. It's you changing, not everybody else, I'm not doing it for everybody else, but for you. Because 99% of those girls that leave just make the programs just so they don't have to be there. And I think every single one of us here that is, are here today, I think are actually willing to change because that other 1% is going to pretty soon turn into two. Working at the home with these girls is an experience full of challenges. Deb Hannes has been at IJH for over 17 years. In a recent interview, she described her experience and talked extensively about working with this population. I could talk about my some of my experiences in terms of working with girls and what I would say in terms of advice for people is, um, first of all, you have to really like kids. Um, and you have to really like girls. And that requires that you be willing to be emotionally invested. I'm not saying over-involved, but you have to get an emotional connection with the girl because if you don't, the work that you do will not help her internalize change, and that's what she has to be able to do. So I would say if you cannot make yourself emotionally vulnerable enough to invest yourself with another person, 
on an emotional level as well as the teaching and the involvement and doing activities and sharing things, um, then this is not the work for you. Our girls have to have that connectedness. They have to be connected um, to you, to how your relationship with that girl um, looks compared to her relationship with her family, compared to her relationship with her community. It has to be a circle. You know, she has to be able to figure out how she fits in in all of these different aspects of her life. And, you know, what we have to be able to do is help her connect and carry that connection with her. Not that we stay terribly involved the whole time that after she leaves us, but we have to give her enough of us that she can carry that with her. And some people are just not cut out to do that. You know, that requires that you really be involved at a level that a kid knows you really care about them. That, that would be my first thing. say is you have to be willing to understand that girls are really complicated. There are lots of things going on in our girls' lives. Um, not only the surface stuff, but lots of other issues. Most of our girls have extreme issues with violence and trauma in their life from family, from boyfriends, from people on the street, from people that they trusted that they shouldn't. And that's a hard, hard thing to work through. And it's very, very damaging for girls. They have to be able to have somebody they can share those things with. They have to have somebody, too, that can teach them to stand up for themselves. Because most of our girls have been raised in systems where they're used and taken advantage of. And they don't believe that they're worth anything different than that. So we have to be able to help teach them that. And that requires, it's a complicated thing. It isn't just what you see on the surface. There's always something else underneath. And you have to be willing to go that second and third level um, and be there for them while you're doing that. At the same time, with our girls, you also have to be able to um, be consistent and be predictable so that they know you're going to be there today, tomorrow, next week, next month. The structure that we have here stays the same too. Um, they can't do well if one day you have one set of rules and the next day you throw those out the window. So you have to be able to get all of that into one package. That's a really uh, complicated situation for people. Um, you have to be a multitasker because there's lots of things going on with girls. You know, a girl that comes home from school upset might have nothing to do with school. It's probably something else that happened the night before or something that happened on the way to school or somebody that looked at her wrong or a hundred other things, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so it takes um, a lot of special skills, I would say, and it takes hard, hard work. Um, people have to be willing to do that if they want to really be effective in girls' lives. Our girls need to have somebody who can be um, open and open-minded in terms of what they're dealing with in ter uh, as far as their own sexuality and as far as sometimes their own sexual orientation. We cannot be judgmental and we cannot be narrow in our opinions of roles and how people should act. Um, many of our kids have been exposed to very um, traumatic sexual encounters. 
um, there's lots of confusion with any teenager around sex. And I think one of the biggest confusions is your body is built to like sex, even if it's in a traumatic, violent situation. And so kids get really mixed up about what does this mean, what am I really like, what do I really want. And they have to have somebody that can be um, really open in talking with them so that they don't feel they're being judged or put in a, in a scripted, narrow role. Because a lot of our kids don't know, I don't think, yet. That's my opinion. I don't think a lot of teenagers know yet mm -hmm. where they're at on that whole continuum of sexuality and how they fit in. So they need to have people to kind of bounce that off of. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there needs to be somebody um, in a placement situation that will be clear with them that you know, placement is not where you can have a sexual relationship with anybody. Right. You know, that's not appropriate. And that sometimes, you know, part of the teenage experience might be wanting to explore some things that will put us sometimes in a role of, of caretaking and sometimes in a role of, of uh, limiting what some of the girls want to do. Discussing anything's fine, but you can't be acting on stuff while you're here. Sometimes that causes some conflict. People will just have to be able to work through that with kids. But I also think then um, we need to probably have a better command than we do of resources that would be available for girls like, um, uh, you know, transgender, uh, bisexual, lesbian, gay resources so that girls who really have questions can talk to some people that have information. You know, we're a small conservative community. There isn't a lot in terms of resources right here, but there's resources in the state that are that are there. We just need to know what they are and be able to to provide information to kids when they need that. Some of our girls will leave and go back to their home situations. We hope with support and strength so that they can be more successful than they were. Um, the other bunch of our girls may go on to either a, a less structured program like group home or foster care or something like that if family is not an option. Or they may go on on their own into independent living programs, something like that, training um, programs or maybe even college in some cases our kids are able to do that if they get the support and I think the key thing is if they have somebody wherever that community is that they can connect with before they leave here so they know where they're going because it's very scary anyway and if you don't have somebody you can kind of latch onto and help you through that it makes for a big struggle when you leave. treatment and residential care, the girls also attend public school regularly. Located on the campus of IJH is Herbert Hoover High School. The principal, Craig Rosen, recently spent some time with me discussing his position. What are the challenges, the challenges of educating this group of girls out here? I think the biggest challenge is getting the girls and kids in general but it's specific to girls so to believe that they are capable of more than they believe in themselves you know, we get kids in here who their own their sole mission is to play the game of, of the institution so they can go back and be with their boyfriends have babies go back to their drug house and uh, 
it's, it's, so it's getting them to believe that they are capable of something more. That's difficult when, when the kids are coming from the environments that they're coming from because you have to build trust and most of their trust with adults has been broken in the past and when you're telling them I want to work with you, uh, you know, I want to build this relationship, they're very suspicious. I think their first thoughts are, what do you want from me? So to try and even get them to turn around, it, it's hard to break through that wall of, and, and build some kind of trust. Now I have one other question that just came to me and I think it's kind of relevant. I know as a, as a male working mm -hmm. in a mostly female facility, you face probably different challenges than some of the female staff in terms of um, building relationships with these girls. How do you do that? I've seen it work both ways where male staff that were not intending to send the wrong message sent the wrong message and girls thought they were trying to have a relationship, an inappropriate relationship. I think you have to be upfront from the, from the very beginning. It, it, it takes a long time to build that relationship where the kids know that you're interested in them as, as people and you're not trying to take something from them. And, and it takes time. It takes more time with some than others. Um, yeah, I can give you an example of one young lady who we've been trying to work with. She is uh, very low functioning. She's having a hard time with subtraction. I had a hard time getting her teacher to accept the fact that if she comes in and doesn't want to do subtraction today, say fine. Go walk over in the corner and let's do it, work on the computer or read a book and we'll try again tomorrow. And it might take three months before you develop a, a relationship with the kid so they understand that they're not trying to push me to doing something. They're not. They truly are interested in me, they're trying to help me, and they're not giving up on me. So it, it's a fine line to have a message that you send, where, okay, you, you don't want to do this today, Let, let's go back, why don't you read or do something different and, and try again tomorrow. So you're not giving up on, on the youth. To go along with that being a male is you have to let the kids know that you care without sending the, the wrong physical messages um, and some of that is, is making sure that you're not giving on how you give physical attention knowing some of those triggers ahead of time I think can can cut some of those things so you, it, you have to use the right words and send the right messages and it's very difficult you're what's a typical intake like when you take a girl in what what would you typically expect to see in terms of her typical. school records you know how many schools do you think she's been to 15 and a half committed some crimes whether or not she's adjudicated delinquent or child need of assistance was kind of dependent on which judge and which district they came out of um, two to three years behind educationally and, and that's changing. It's been changing over the years where it used to be maybe a year behind, now it's two years. I think in the last three or four months the intakes we've been getting in have been in the IQ anywhere from 50 to 70 range. So I, the, the, the stuff that I would normally say with being two years behind, that's changed a lot in the, the last four months. Most are on an IEP. Most will have 
behavioral goals. If we're lucky, the schools have done a comprehensive job in identifying both behavioral needs and academic needs. That's not always true. And I, I would say it's more not true than, than uh, being... It's, it's, yes, it's, it's more typical than not that kids are coming here ha having a 60 IQ, having all kinds of academic and behavioral needs, and the schools will only identify behavioral. Which is which is not it, it's robbing the kid of, of services because a lot of times that behavior is a res, is a result of how they interact with the curriculum. And then after these kids leave, what do you think is a typical story for them educationally? A lot of our kids we can have an impact on, and we can get them stabilized, but they're not going to have the support services when they leave to continue that. And I think a lot of kids are going to be put in situations where they're going to be set up to fail. Then why, since you don't have your summers off, you work with the toughest kids there are, probably educationally, you know, you're in a system that is not funded adequately for the job that you have to do. Why do you stay and do this? What is it that makes you like your job enough to be motivated to be here? You feel like you're doing something worthwhile, even though that a lot of times we're being here head against the wall with funding with all the problems that we have. That one kid that calls you back after two years and said, I have a job, I'm married, I have a child, I have a steady job, you know, it, those are the kind of things that you really think, I really made a difference where th that kid, I don't know where that kid would have been without this institution. the time that I spent at the juvenile home working with these girls. I found them to be wonderful young women. At the juvenile home they're safe. They know where their next meal is coming from. They can be assured that they will have clothes and shoes that fit. They can be assured that they'll be free from abuse and violence and physical assault. At the home these girls are able to work through substance abuse issues and receive treatment for mental health. The problem really lies with not the home, but what happens to these girls after they leave the home. The transition between the home and the real world back to our communities in Iowa is always difficult. Some of these girls luckily will return to their parents. Others will return to foster care. Some will strike out on their own through independent living situations. And some will be placed in group homes until they're 18. There are also the girls that fall through the cracks and end up back on the streets. As community members, we should ask ourselves what can we do to ensure that the girls in Iowa grow up healthy and happy and strong. There are several things that I personally think are important to consider. One, these girls need mentors. They need to be surrounded by positive adults who they know care about them, who they know that they can trust, and who they know have their best interest at heart. These girls also need to learn about their bodies and about how to prevent pregnancy and deal with reproductive issues, substance abuse, and mental health. They need places where they can become engaged in the community. They need outlets and ways to become involved in a positive way at their school. And they even need support from community places such as churches and centers. 
We should also encourage them to seek mediation in times of conflict instead of resorting to violence. Many of these girls also have questions regarding their sexuality. They're not sure how to deal with members of the opposite sex or if they want to deal with members of the opposite sex. It's important for them to find places where they can go to discuss these issues and become educated. We also need to provide settings for them to practice appropriate social skills. We need to find places where they can be employed and learn a little bit about living on their own. And we also need to look past the scars they may have or the self-destructive behaviors and realize that perhaps these are actually a cry for help. Perhaps they've been victims of abuse or perhaps they're depressed. Some of the girls that leave the juvenile home are already teenage mothers. We need to help them learn to live with their children in positive and happy ways through training opportunities and we also need to provide affordable child care relief. We need to ask ourselves as members of these communities what we can do to help. How can we contribute our time and our resources to make girls in Iowa successful, happy, and healthy? complete high school, go to college, and learn how to be a nurse. Um, I want to, I have one year of uh, high school left, so I want to complete that. Um, and then hopefully I'm going to be going to college, and I want to become a therapist or a counselor to help other um, girls. I'm in the middle of my wow. GED right now. So, um, I got really behind in school, and I really don't have any credits, so I really didn't have a choice. It's probably the best thing for me. And so I'm in the middle of that, and um, afterwards I plan on going to like a community college to start out with, and I want to work with children, um, little children. Um. Staying out of trouble and getting a job. Thank you for taking time to listen to this CD, and I hope that this CD has made you think a little more about what you can do to improve the lives of girls in the state of Iowa. <laughs>